and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Today on the podcast, we conclude Michael's conversation with Mark Vesper and Steve Sargent of Foxhole Symphony, which is a podcast about the transformational value of men in authentic Christian community. Mark and Steve spoke with Michael a few weeks ago and were kind enough to lend us the recording to feature on this week and last week's episodes. Visit our archives page for a link to hear the first half of their conversation. And we've also included a link in the show notes if you'd like to discover more about Foxhole Symphony. Now, today, Michael unpacks the five W's of human brokenness, as well as the role authentic transformational community plays in the Christian life. So now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick, along with Mark Vesper and Steve Sargent. Searching for God, I talked about brokenness as four W's, but I didn't present it as such. Then I wrote a chapter called Your Brain on God, and I thought after the book came out, oh, that's the fifth W. So here are the five W's, and I'm going to walk through them really quickly. And the five of these together in some are our brokenness, our human brokenness. The first one is wickedness. The second one is weakness. The third one is woundedness. Fourth one is warfare. Fifth one is wiring. So wickedness, weakness, woundedness, warfare, and wiring. And each of these are components to our humanity. Every single person uh, that's ever lived has had these five W's. Jesus did not have the wickedness part, but he was weak. He was vulnerable. He was a victim of warfare, and he had wiring. So I'll walk through these. The first one is wickedness. And um, any Christian will know Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But wickedness in the Bible is not really, really bad Christians. It's this idea of our our proclivity to be autonomous and independent. Hmm. And that is that we are bad, that we are unlovable, that we are unworthy, that we are despicable, and kind of that God is disgusted with us, all capitals, but— Jesus died on the cross for us. And as my friend <laughs> right. Paul, Paul Young says, who uh, wrote the book The Shack, he says, my version of that was that I'm a piece of crap and God sprinkles powdered sugar on me in Jesus. Mm. And so we basically become this sweet and white piece of crap, but it's still a piece of crap. And that is utterly unbiblical. Even the idea of Jeremiah 17, 9, because I know some of your listeners are going, but wait a minute, aren't our hearts desperately wicked? No, not if you're a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus and you are in Christ, your heart of stone has been turned to a heart of flesh, and he sprinkled you with clean water, and you're clean, and we are new creations, and we've been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live with us, but the life of Christ lives in us. So our hearts have literally been transformed, and I wrote a chapter in my book called The Good Heart, which I thought would be very controversial, but people have really received it, because I think it resonates with men's spirits. So wickedness is not Osama bin Laden and Hitler, but not me. It's this, I have this bent in me to be independent from God and to not trust in his goodness. So that's wickedness. And most of the times when we talk about any kind of habitual sin, sexual sin, compulsion, even if you guys were to say, so Michael, what's behind um, anxiety? The average person would say, oh, sin, that's easy. 
But that is not only a incomplete answer, it's it's not a very integrated answer with our human our humanity because we're so much more than that. So if the first W is wickedness, the second one is weakness. And I've already alluded to this, but our weakness is our vulnerability and our limitation as human beings. So if I say Jesus was weak, you know, people say, well, no, he's not. He, no, no, he's not. He was like Bible man. You know, he had a super <laughs> cape and uh, he, he was the superhero of all time. Well, Jesus had to go to the bathroom. He probably had calluses on his feet at certain times. If he was learning carpentry from Joseph and he cut himself, he would bleed. He had to sleep. When he was in Gethsemane, he had to talk to his three friends and said, hey, stay awake and pray for me. So he was vulnerable. And the whole idea of Philippians 2 of God becoming man and that kenosis passage of emptying himself is saying, I am choosing vulnerability. And in fact, I'm choosing humiliation to show my love because we forget this because of modern art. But before the 15th century, there was a lot of art that was, quote, Christian art that showed Jesus on the cross naked and not covered in the in the common cloth that we see today in most instances. And so here was God stripped naked. And I've I've actually meditated on that thought. And the thought of me hanging exposed, like even from a chin-up bar, just hanging there naked by my hands and people walking by, like I get shivers in my spine going, God, I hope that never happens. Mm -hmm. And here was God stripped naked, beaten, crucified, and in that way humiliated. So that's his vulnerability, his limitations is that he chose to self-limit himself, and every human being since then has been vulnerable like that. Another word for this is dependent, right? interdependent. But here's the thing. In our world, um, vulnerability is talked about more and more because of people like Brene Brown and other authors. Mm -hmm. And we have to talk about this because vulnerability, we've learned, is not a good thing. Uh-oh, avoid vulnerability. Uh, God helps those who help themselves and be a self-made man. But when God made Adam and Eve, vulnerability was a glory. Vulnerability was something that allowed them to deeply be known and understood uh, and to know the other, to see into the depths of their heart and their soul. Mm -hmm. Their vulnerability was what gave God joy and made Adam and Eve free in that childlike sense of a child being vulnerable because they might not be able to cook their own food, dress themselves, bathe themselves uh, across the street. But if they are loved and well-parented, they're carefree, they're joyful to the point where Jesus said, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a little child. Mm -hmm. So that weakness is something that we're not meant to overcome. It's something that we're meant to steward. And therefore, my sexual abuse was weakness. And I didn't know at the time that it was abuse. And I didn't know it was weakness because it was something I had to stuff away. And I know there's a men's ministry that you guys have been part of called Mark Men for Christ. And they're not the first ones to use this analogy. It goes all the way back to the psychologist Carl Jung. But this idea of holding a left hand and a right hand and our weakness in one and our strength in the other, that those two can be side by side. Right. And more often than not, what we do is we take our talents, our abilities, our strengths, our gifts, all the things that are likable and winning about us. And we present those in front of us in both of our hands and people go, wow, that's neat. But then we take our vulnerabilities, our limitations, our humanity, the things we might be ashamed about, not even sins, but just things that they're ashamed about. People could see me 
They could see something about me. They could see something about my body, my character, my behavior, my performance. Maybe I uh, stutter when I talk um, and, and they will go, ooh, that's not good. And what I believe will happen, and this has been happening ever since Genesis 3, is that I will be left. I will either be rejected or abandoned, because if you see what's really inside of me, you will not love me. And that's because since Genesis 3, when um, Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves based on those lies that the, uh, that the serpent told, shame always creates distance. And there's, there's distance between people, but there's also distance within myself. Psychologists call this interpersonal distance or intrapersonal. And the intra is within myself. We disconnect from our own heart. And we generally, when our shame is there over this vulnerability or what we perceive to be a flaw, we either dial down and say, I'm too much. Because when I step out and when I, in 10th grade, signed up for the theater uh, project at my school and the play, I chickened out because I thought if people heard me sing or if I think I'm funny, they're going to think I'm not funny. And one of my buddies in high school signed up with me on that same day. We made a pack. He went on to move to Hollywood and he's been in a Nickelodeon cartoon for the last 15 years. Wow. And so, you know, I don't know exactly at what point our stories diverged, but it was really shame. I've got to dial down. The other side is I've got to dial up. I've got to be bigger than I actually am. This is where narcissism comes from. This is where yeah. the poser, the imposter comes from of, you know, I've got to wear a Rolex GMT2 on my wrist, and then you'll think I'm successful. You'll think I'm a real man. I collect watches. I don't have that watch. But my fantasy has always been, man, when I get this watch, then I'll be a badass. And then guys in this circle will think something of me. And that's all driven by shame, shame that says I am not enough. So I know I'm only on the second W, but I want to just pause, guys, and say, as, as I'm talking, these are the things that lurk beneath the surface of a struggle with lust and porn and sexual sin. Huh. The, the problems with sexual sin are not about sex any more than problems with overeating are about M&Ms or pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. The problem is about something different. And fundamentally, the problem is about our brokenness. Specifically, how we mishandle our pain, not trusting God, but taking our own tack and way of managing our pain. And then the problem is about shame. So back to we've got wickedness. We've got weakness, which is that vulnerability. Then we have woundedness. And I know you guys talk about this and you've done a lot of work around this. But in short, there's wounds of presence, things that um, were never meant to happen, but they did. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse. It could be name calling on the playground. It could be violence from a parent or growing up in an alcoholic home. <laughs> on the other side of wounds, you have wounds of absence. And these are the things that should have happened and that we actually needed for survival mm. and for to become whole emotionally, spiritually, relationally um, and mentally. But we needed these things and we didn't get them. And those are wounds of absence. More often than not, it's men that are successful, driven, and ambitious, they have a harder time recovering from the wounds of absence than they do from the wounds of presence. Huh. You give me a guy who's had the crap beat out of him when he's little versus a guy that grows up in a really great home and he's successful, who's going to have a harder time changing? The guy who has everything together because he's compensated his whole life, right. but he still has a false self. He still lives out of this imposter belief. So that's our wounds. The, the fourth one is warfare. 
We have an enemy, First Peter tells us, that he prowls around like a roaring lion to devour us. Mm. And it's really important that to say that there is such a thing as personal evil. In many ways, uh, the idea of evil has fallen out of vogue, even among Christian circles. Um, but there's personal evil that comes against us, and evil hates our soul because we have the capacity to be like God in the world and to shine his light. And the fundamental way that warfare comes against a man with sexual sin is not by uh, bringing porn websites in front of a guy or by a flirtatious woman at work. It's through deception. Uh, Bill Struthers, who's a professor at uh, Wheaton College, a professor of neuroscience and psychology, he said that it's not the shouting of the lie that lures men into sexual sin. It's the whisper. It's the whisper of pornography that says, this will make you a real man. Mm. This is what can give you real comfort. This is what will soothe you without that vulnerability and without that risk that real intimacy engages us in. And so with the wickedness, weakness, woundedness, and warfare, the warfare, think of an arrow. In Ephesians 6, it says that the shield of faith is there to extinguish the flaming arrows. And think of the arrow. Where does it land? It lands in the wound. It lands in the place where we're already hurting, Mm. where we're thinking, I can't trust love. I can't trust being vulnerable because I will be hurt. I'll be abandoned. And so it always lands there. And then our wounds and the weaknesses that we don't surrender, they become a kind of launching pad for our sin and a landing pad for the enemy. And this is how the four of these start to work together. The fifth W is simply wiring. And by that, I mean We are physical beings comprised of electrons, neutrons, carbon, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and a bunch of other stuff. Now, God took the dust and created Adam, and he says in Psalm 139 that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. He created us in our mother's womb, but we are biological beings. And the historic Hebrew idea of the word soul means body, mind, emotions, will, and spirit. All of those things integrated together, not just Uh, A part of us, it's like a cloud that is always kind of floating inside of us when we die, it goes to heaven. So our body, our wiring is actually part of what it means to be a soul. We don't have souls. We are souls. They represent our being. So all five of these W's together are our brokenness. And the interrelationship is that our sin, which is the first one, can be thought of as the tip of the iceberg. And that tip of the iceberg is there, but underneath it is this massive constellation of our neural pathways. So when I was four and I began to be sexually abused and when I was living in an alcoholic home, my neural pathways went into high alert where I was always hypervigilant or where at times I had to go numb. So I've lived my whole life going from numbness to wound up and driven, numbness to wound up and driven, which is basically depression and anxiety. Um, And then on a warfare level, these lies that I am shameful, that I am disgusting, that I am dirty. I walked around through um, elementary school and through junior high in the first part of my high school years, literally feeling this sense of I'm a man, I'm a boy with a penis in my mouth, and no girl would want anything to do with me. And I wasn't gay. I didn't have uh, relational desires for men, but I just saw myself as that dirty and disgusting. And that was the lie. That was the warfare against me. The lie of women will think you're funny and want to be your friend, but they would never, ever want to be uh, a romantic partner, a girlfriend, anything like that. That was the lie. All essentially messages of shame. And where did those land? 
they landed in the wounds. And so I remember in high school, there was this incident and I thought I died and went to heaven. There was this girl that wanted to make out with me and she was like really forward. She was this girl that smoked and, and I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. And I had been looking at pornography already. This was through the 70s and the very early 80s. And as as we were making out and this is just a weird story to tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, I remember literally shivering and quaking on the inside. And I thought that I was like cold, but I wasn't cold. We were in somebody's house. And what was happening was I was basically having a panic attack on the inside mm-hmm. that any kind of proximity of intimacy, real intimacy was overwhelming to me and it felt unsafe. And it might as well have been that that one of the Taliban was standing there with a with a AK-47 to my head. Now, none of that was conscious, but I remember all of these incidences. I remember I became Christian at age 16 through Young Life. And our Young Life leader did this, what I now believe was a very kind of forward-thinking exercise. The book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, was out then uh, by, it was a book on this transactional analysis. It basically involved you looking into each other's eyes. So he lines up all of us high school kids, which I don't even know if I would do today because it's so (laughs) weird. Um, With men, maybe. But so, and we're looking in each other's eyes. And there's this girl that I had a crush on, and she's the reason I went to Young Life. And we're standing there about a foot apart, looking into each other's eyes. And I could not look in her eyes. I just had to keep looking down and I had to close my eyes. Then I started to laugh. I finally kind of faked my way because she was taking this serious and wanted to look in my eyes. And I felt like, oh my gosh, this is heaven, this moment. But I'm absolutely terrified about what she's going to see. She's going to see the shame that I feel. And many years later, we had some correspondence, and my, my wife knew about this. It was really something intentional and therapeutic that I that I was doing. And I, I wrote her, I told her my story, and I gave her a copy of a talk I'd given on my testimony about my abuse and my addiction. And she said, I remember that moment at Young Life where we're supposed to look into each other's eyes, and you were shaking. And I was like, wow. oh, my gosh, I thought I, I thought I covered that pretty well. <laughs> so my, my point is, is there was the warfare, the arrow that had gone right into my wounds. And instead of having that vulnerability and saying, God, here it is, I had no model, no language and no lens to think about my Christian faith as God wanting anything to do with that weakness, that vulnerability or my wounds. And in fact, tragically, I went to. Uh, one of the people that was discipling me, and I said, um, and this was one of the most vulnerable things I'd ever done at the time. And I said, you know, I, I feel like I'm really good with my spiritual disciplines and quiet time and all that, but I, I think I need to tell you this. And I said, um, I was sexually abused when I was a kid because I then had that language. And this well-intentioned good man said, oh, Second Corinthians 5.17, you're, you're a new creation in Christ. You don't have to worry about that. Just put it behind you. And in me, something died at that moment because I knew that as far as ceaseless striving went, that I was in the 99th percentile and that if I couldn't do it, then, oh, my gosh, I'm just stuck in my brokenness. And then I concluded this is as good as it gets. This is the Christian life. Mm -hmm. It took me another 10 years, guys, to stand in church singing a worship song and everyone's singing and allegedly joyful and lifting their hands or whatever. I was actually a Presbyterian, so my hands were in my pocket. I just can't lift them higher than that. But um, Foul. And, and I said, I said, God, if this is all there is to being a Christian, 
I don't think I want to be a Christian. Mm. And if I could put words in God's mouth, I believe that what he said in my heart was, once again, thank you. Now we can talk. <laughs> now we I've can get waiting, started. I've, yeah, I've been waiting for you to tell me that mm. because this is not the Christian life. Like Willard said, is there something more than ceaseless striving and brokenness? And the answer to that is yes, freedom. Yeah. And I'll stop and pause, but I want to come back and talk about freedom a little bit because that then relates to what is wholeness. Brokenness are all of those components which God does not want us to get rid of our wickedness. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Sure. We don't have to get rid of it. He did. Yeah. And then as it comes back, we learn to integrate that into who we are, saying that God loves us. We trust him more. We experience his faithfulness, his provision, the ways that he sees us, soothes us, uh, gives us a sense of security. Oh, my body starts to internalize that. My mind starts to align with my body. And suddenly, I don't need to eat that third bag of M&Ms. Suddenly, I don't need to have that second, third, or fourth donut. Suddenly, I don't need to take that shot of tequila in my basement during the first week of quarantine. And I just went chug, 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 chug. I hadn't had a drink in over a decade. Mm. And um, why? Because I felt dead inside and I had no energy. Now, I love God, but that was the season. That was time. It was COVID. It was a lot of things where I wasn't tending well to my brokenness. So how we become whole, and I said I was going to take a pause, but I want to finish this thought. Our brokenness is on the left hand, if you will. And on the right hand is who we actually are in the middle of all that. Because in the middle of, if you think of uh, an archery target, like a bullseye, where the outermost circle is our wickedness and then our uh, weakness wound us all the way in. In the middle of that target, there is our true self. And that true self is the me and the you that God said is fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's no small point to say that that was David pre-Jesus dying on the cross saying that God said you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God didn't say, well, actually, David, you think you're fearfully and wonderfully made, but your heart is deceitful and wicked and you can't be trusted. He said, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. The same true self, the, tr- the true real image of God within us that he said, I formed you and I knew you before I even formed you. And I set that apart. That's what is at our deep core. That's where there is life and vitality and the part of us that wants to align with God. And so wholeness is not just being put back together like, oh, I was abused and I had addictions I grew up in an alcoholic dysfunctional family, so God's kind of putting me back together like Humpty Dumpty. That's part of it. But wholeness is allowing the darkness and the light to be there together. Mm-hmm. So in my left hand, I've got wickedness, weakness, woundedness, warfare, and all of my wiring. And in my right hand, I have God's love and the true me. So now can I hold the left and the right intention together? Mm-hmm. And in the, in the gospel reality and the gospel truth that life comes from death, there's this ancient idea of paradox. A paradox is where um, two things that seem to contradict can actually be held side by side. And in the holding them side by side, there's a third thing that emerges. And the Bible is full of threes, not the, not the least of which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in holding 
the broken part of me, the sinful part of me, the vulnerable part of me, and then this other part of me that God loves, and God is holding my brokenness, and God is holding me, and there's something more to me than my brokenness. As I hold those side by side, what happens is the left and the right hand start to come together, Mm -hmm. and I don't have to be just one. I can be both, and then those hands are united, Mm -hmm. like I'm folding my hands, and now I don't see two hands. I see hands held together. And that's what wholeness is. And I think a lot of people are mistaken with wholeness is I get rid of all of my junk. And when I stop sinning, stop masturbating, stop lusting, um, prove to my wife, you know, that I'm a good enough dad, bring in enough income, et cetera. That's when I'm whole, when the struggle is gone. But the reason I talked about freedom earlier is that brokenness is the bridge to wholeness. Mm. And the path to wholeness is freedom. The freedom is, is that we do not have to change in order for God to move toward us, yeah. to embrace us, or to even like us. But we can't get that deep down inside of us where it's internalized. Um, so God has to use the brokenness in our life. Now, we eventually can get to a place where there's freedom. But freedom is not just freedom from something. Freedom is much more so about moving toward something. So the easiest freedom for me was actually getting free from my sexual addiction. But then I've had to spend almost 30 years moving into what it means to live out of wholeness, what it means to live out of uh, my heart where God made me as a man, what it means to love my wife as Christ loved the church, uh, what, what love actually is to learn if love can be trusted. And that's the hard part is the journey of becoming. Yeah. Man, that, that is a, an incredibly robust, uh, depiction of the journey from broken to whole, right? I mean, these, these five words, um, and, and you just put a, yeah, just an incredibly comprehensive, um, you know, summary to that journey, that path to, to freedom. Um, you know, as you know, the, our podcast, you know, the, what Mark and I are so passionate about and, and what we've experienced together the last 15 years is, is the, the transformational value of being an authentic community. And so yeah. I'm so curious to know what your perspective is on the significance or even the role that authentic community plays in that journey, because a a lot of what you're talking, or even in your own story, you know, a lot of what you're talking about sounds so isolating. It sounds so, you know, individual and, you know, my my brokenness and, and, and my, you know, my journey, of course, toward, toward, toward God, right. And being drawn toward him. But what, what role does, authentic community play in that journey? Well, in my life, it played a hundred percent and um, I'm a pretty insightful. I'd like to think I'm a self-aware person because I'm a psychotherapist. I do a lot of reflection, journaling, etc. but I cannot change myself. And of course, Christians will say, no, only God can. But what I mean by that is that we can only change in relationship. We're wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. And I absolutely love your emphasis on transformational community and particularly authentic community. That's what transformational community is. But transformational community is not like you've had dinner at a really nice restaurant and you'd ordered off of the menu. And then the server comes and brings you the dessert menu 
and they they bring the desserts on tray and okay i'll have a little transformational community now transformational community is actually the main course for humanity um that's why that's why babies are born inside of a mother's womb uh, everything about our human design is somehow to mirror life with god or the very nature of god within the trinity this this interrelational perichoresis is this word of, of of transformational pouring out but without without losing oneself mm-hmm. and so in community as we get together whether it's the first community like a marriage with adam and eve or a men's group like what you guys do or if i go out with my buddy for buffalo wings like i did on saturday that whether you're talking about football or whether you're talking about deep spiritual things that when two people are together, when they are living out of their true self, something is created. But on a, on a relational level, we get together for breakfast, we get together for men's group, and there's a potentiality in me to come to that meeting and to share, man, I'm really struggling. Or to say, I see that you're really struggling. And out of that, that relationship and the connection that something is born that looks like God, that has energy to it. And that is bringing forth something like a garden where colors and petals and and fruit and vegetables are growing. That's what's meant to happen in relationship. Uh, Certainly, there's things like simple joy and laughter and being together, sitting around a fire. But relationship and community at its best is always uh, it's always bearing fruit and not the kind of fruit like, oh, I'm leading people to Jesus. But you're together with great friends and you go out to dinner and then you 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 go to a coffee shop and you, you drink coffee or you have guests over at your house and you're playing a board game and you're laughing. And then you look at the clock, it's 11 o'clock and you're just sad that that night is ending because it's been so rich and so good. That's because something has been um, generated and that there's fruit and there's life there. And that's what porn gets in the way of. Mm. Porn can never bear fruit. That's, again, why it's sinful. Um, uh, a person can't bear fruit through masturbation. You can't, if you're by yourself, you can't masturbate and have somebody become pregnant. But pregnancy and having a baby is the physiological human measure of fruit. Uh, sure. But there's a fruit that's far, far beyond that. And so community is fundamentally about that. And then the other huge category as it relates to our sexuality is that it's where we're known. Um, right. you know, God could have just created Adam and said, okay, we're good. Now all the animals have a name and uh, <laughs> I'll make him a really fast picker of, of fruit and that kind of thing. And we didn't need another person, but he said, it's not good for him to be alone. Not because, oh, he's lonely and I want him to stop hurting. Of course, God is compassionate, but it's not good for him to be alone because he cannot reflect what the father, son, and Holy spirit are like. Right. So the father would have said he cannot do what we do. Yeah, And that is to do this relationship thing where there's generativity, where there's life that comes out of that. So then Satan says, well, I know what, we'll get a picture of the woman and we'll paint it on a cave wall. And, you know, the curvy part here, we'll make that really prominent. And so, you know, if the per- first pornography happened on cave walls, then you have a man pouring out his strength and his energy. And that part of him that would move toward a woman to 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 bring forth strength. Uh, where the two of them together would become something greater than the sum of their parts. And there again is wholeness, not a perfect man and a perfect woman, 
but a broken man and woman who join together, and there's a wholeness there that reflects something of the the picture of God. Hmm. I love what you said, Michael. Um, I made a note here: relationship and community at its best is always bearing fruit. That's it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that is awesome. Powerful. Love, love that. And uh, yeah, and let me let me just qualify that one more time because I'm glad you came back to that. And I know that you're going to have a percentage of listeners that say, "Yeah, that my relationships are supposed to be productive." But what if one of our modern myths that we've come to believe is that fruitfulness is productivity? Uh, Some of my most fr- wow. fruitful days in the last year were in play. Huh. One of the most fruitful weekends I've ever had is I went with Peter Zaremba to see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway last August. Hmm. It's one of the most transcendent moments of my life. And he and I were together. It was a really, really sweet moment. And I would say that was fruitful because something was confirmed in my heart. Something grew in my heart that I left that evening and I thought, I'm a better person for having experienced this. And I won't even get into it. It was it was like three hours of preaching the gospel, uh, especially if you grew up in Cleveland with Springsteen. Um, <laughs> Are you still I, paying off the loan for the tickets, though? <laughs> yeah. No, Z is. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, those were those were uh, that was a bucket list kind of thing. I sold a kidney, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to? Let's you know, and the it. other thing that was fruitful was I've got a friend that I don't get to see that often. He lives in um, Atlanta, Georgia, and we flew to Salt Lake and we spent three days in a river fly fishing. Mm. And here's one of the reasons that was fruitful for me. I'm terrified as a man to go into the outdoors where I am dependent and where I didn't grow up hiking and camping. And I pretty much got kicked out of Boy Scouts and a lot of my <laughs> abuse happened outdoors and in oh, the wow. woods. Mm. And so I don't I don't want to go there. And. Um, I had this really expensive pocket knife that was cool. And when I opened it, I couldn't close it. This was like three years ago. So I had this expensive like outdoorsman's pocket knife open in my desk drawer. And I just thought, ah, I don't know how to close it. So screw it. I'll just leave it there. And I was on a podcast one day with Morgan Snyder, who had written a book called Becoming a King. Great book. And he has a chapter in there called The Case for Owning a Pocket Knife. And I just skipped over that part. And I went, that's stupid. You know, I don't need to be one of those kind of he-man guys. So I'm getting ready for the podcast with Morgan. And I go, and I think this is the Holy Spirit. Michael, go look at that knife. You can close it. And there was the warfare. You don't know anything Mm -hmm. that real men know. Mm -hmm. You're a wuss. I mean, come on, your next door neighbor, look at all the hunting gear and everything he's got in his garage and you can't even close that freaking pocket knife. So I walked over, I opened the drawer, I took out the pocket knife and I'm like, Oh, there's this little button in between, in between the edges. And if you press that, it closes. So I'm doing fist pumps. I'm going, yes, yes, I did it. And then I go on the program and I tell Morgan that story. And I love that part of his book. So I think totally unrelated. If you want to ever, if you want to get over porn, a pocket knife. There you go. <laughs> That's the answer. Now we have the title There's of the, the podcast. Pr- that, that was a, a long way to get to practical application. There you go. There we go. Buy a pocket and, knife. And that's a that's a good example, though, of how the five W's come together. Right. Uh, is that there was the lie, there was the wound, and my body was reacting. And so, hey, man, I don't want to go into the woods. I don't want to go fly fishing in Santa River because I don't know how to tie the knots and blah, blah, blah. So we hired a guide. And it was absolutely magical. And I caught a whole bunch of fish and I didn't have to learn everything about fly fishing. And I was with this buddy and I don't drink. He had some beers. I had some Diet Cokes. 
We laughed, got bit by mosquitoes, and it was just magical. And it was completely unproductive, but it was a thousand percent fruitful. Mm. So we must learn the difference between fruitfulness and productivity. And fruitfulness is a posture of our heart that's open and that's receptive at the same time. And productivity is a posture of our heart like a fist that's closed, trying to hold on to something to to preserve it or trying to make something happen. It's the difference between fruitfulness is opening a faucet, the spigot on the side of a building, and something flows because there's a reservoir versus standing at one of those pumps on a farm, the well pump, and 20, 30 times pumping the well before water comes out. One is productive, the other is fruitful. And that's a mark of freedom in our lives. And we can't try to overcome our sexual sin by standing and pumping the well, um, trying to produce a result. Yeah, I love it. You have um, a weekend um, called Restoring the Soul. Uh, real quick, you know, who is it for? And, and, and I, we know what people gain from it because you just described it. You just explained it. But, you know, who, who is the Restoring the Soul weekend for? Uh, it's a 66-hour experiential weekend called the Restoring the Soul Weekend uh, that's separate from the intensive counseling that we do in Denver. And this is at a bed and breakfast that we take over between Denver and Colorado Springs. Uh, 30 participants uh, where we do large group experiential work and small group experiential work. Every group has a licensed therapist and a lay leader. Um, and we take men through the process of uh, looking at their trauma and the shame and the lies that they believe. And it's really for men that are tired of the ceaseless driving and tired of just living in their brokenness. And many of the men that come are hopeless. They've given up any sense of hope that their lives could be different, that they could actually be free and not just sober or in this lather, rinse, repeat cycle with lust and pornography. Um, But about three years ago, more men started coming who they didn't have a significant or primary issue with pornography or sexual sin or infidelity in their marriage. Uh, They were coming because they had sexual abuse or because they had other kinds of trauma or because they just didn't know how to be friends with other guys. And uh, it's still a very transformational experience where um, from Thursday night till 12 at noon, we see men coming in, you know, heavy and worn down by life and pain and something really significant and substantial shifts so that when they leave on Sunday and then start our 12 week aftercare program, that, um, there's, there's a whole new way of doing life. We, we like to talk about it as an invitation to do life differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good definition of repentance. Repentance is not God. I'm really, 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 really sorry. And I promise I'm never going to do this again. Repentance is, Hey, what I've been doing isn't working. And so I'm going to do life different and follow you down a different path of trust. Mm. I love it. Thank you. That's cool. And and we've known, uh, you know, we know a handful of men that have been on the weekend and, um, and, and we've seen it. I mean, we've seen and heard and, and, you know, the, the, um, just the transformational value of, of, of what you're, what you, you're, you guys are doing there. And so, well, so I'll, thank you for that. I'll do an unapologetic plug from Michael that he didn't ask for. And that is if you want to understand the value of an RTS weekend, listen to episode nine right. of ours with John Mazuera, yep. Maz on there. And it'll, it'll tell right. you everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to that. And John is, John is one of our biggest fans because his personality is just so 
big and <laughs> infectious. Um, yeah, like I imagine if he likes chocolate chip cookies, everybody else around him is going to like chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is not, he's not, he's yeah. not uh, in between on anything. No, this is a guy who's not a salesman either. He's a SWAT team member. Love right? it. That's Love it. Just raw. Um, Michael, last question. So we wrap up, and this one's for the listeners more, more than anything, is ask, uh, what are a couple of resources you'd recommend as essential for men in this battle where we, we, you know, from brokenness to wholeness, we use the foxhole metaphor as, you know, you're in there together back to back and you got each other's back. It's a, there's a battle going on here. What would you say that, you know, one or two resources men could use that would be helpful? Yeah. Um, Thank you for framing it that way. Cause I love the foxhole metaphor that we are in a battle and I'll go back to the weekend. And if you were to talk to John Maz, he'd probably say this. Most men think the battle is against porn, against sin, against whatever it is that they don't want to be doing. And that's the number one mistake. So in the foxhole, we're not fighting against something. We're fighting for something. Mm. And so people say, you know, oh, thank you. You spent the last 10 years and with your book, you're really fighting against porn. I'm like, no, I'm not. I I don't have any desire to fight against porn. Uh, I'll lose, period. But what I can do and what I think I'm actually pretty good at and God has called me to do is to fight for men's hearts Mm -hmm. and to fight that men don't just give up and allow the arrows of the enemy to take them out, to fight for men's hearts to be whole and to give men a language and a lens, a way of understanding themselves of, oh, I'm not a fill in the blank, uh, a dick, an asshole a disgusting person. I'm not this horrible Christian. I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm not bad. And that is how Jesus sees us. That is how Jesus sees us. And that's what fills his heart with such compassion because the very heart of God and the very heart of the Trinity Trinity is shalom, wholeness, well-being in a way that we can't humanly understand. Uh, That's really what wholeness is. That's what integrity is. Integer is a whole number, and integrity is a sense of wholeness. So regarding sex, I I would certainly refer people to my book, but I love to pass on other resources as well. And if your listeners have not heard of the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer, I've said over the last couple of years that if I were to write a sequel to Surfing for God, it would be the material in this book. Uh, Jay is a licensed therapist with a Master of Divinity. He's a professor at the Seattle School psychology and theology. And he did research with thousands of men online where he did actual surveys. But then what he did was he looked at the same idea that there's deeper roots in our sexual sin and our addictions and compulsions. And his take was he went and talked about attachment and how um, we're looking for unhealthy um, attachments where we can be seen to safe and secure and how we need to deal with those very earliest experiences that shaped uh, what, what and how we do intimacy in our life. So the book is Unwanted by Jay Stringer, S-T-R-I-N-G-E-R. Got it. And it is with Nav Press. And then my book is Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. And that is with Thomas Nelson Publishing. Awesome. Got them both. Awesome. That's really helpful. And we are incredibly thankful for like not only your candor, but the depth, you know, your knowledge, your wisdom on the topic and what men will be able to do with what you've shared is just 
<laughs> Rich doesn't even cover it. This is gold as far as I'm concerned. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, I'm so glad. And uh, I think we talked about this when we were talking to kind of prepare for this conversation. But uh, Sarge, I know that when you were on staff at a church, I came to that church and spoke up in your neck of the woods. So yes. you'll have to have me back there sometime and we'll go see Bruce Springsteen. That, that'll be awesome. That <laughs> will be awesome. Brother, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you do. We we pray God's continued blessings over you and all that you do. And um, uh, listeners, uh, thank you for, for joining us and uh, check out Restoring the Soul. Um, check out the podcast. Uh, Michael's got just tons and tons of great content, incredible guests. And so, uh, Michael, I hope to have you on again another time and maybe we'll, we'll shift topics a little bit, but thank you for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm really delighted. And I would come back in a heartbeat. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com.